Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The stone face of the churchyard sundial, though aged and worn, proclaimed its timeless warning. Life passes like the shadow. With one finger, Lucy Campion traced each finely etched letter, ignoring the cheerful din of churchgoers released from St. Dunstan's long Sunday morning service. The minister's sermon had been particularly grim, emphasizing the wages of sin, even with Yuletide nearly upon them. Life passes like the shadow, where fall temptation then, she wondered. That's a magic place, a voice hissed in her ear. Why lay your hands upon it? Lucy turned to face the old woman, taking in the dark costume of the long bereaved. The earnestness to her demeanor gave her pause. Why do you say that? Can you not see the dead spiders upon the dial's surface? Something ill is coming. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Susanna Calkins, author of The Cry of the Hangman, sixth installment in the Lucy Campion mystery series. Set at the end of the 17th century in London, Cry of the Hangman is the author's sixth installment in the series about a maid who learns how to read, gets apprenticed to a printer, melts the hearts of men who'd never have thought to fall in love with her when she was a servant, and solves mysteries, but only after she's finished her tasks each day. Lucy Campion, in book six of the series, realizes that a recent burglary of her previous employer's study has resulted in unflattering stories being circulated by a rival bookseller. Lucy decides to investigate and ends up witnessing a murder. She knows she must determine who was responsible for the burglary, who murdered the printer, and how is it all connected. Hi, Susanna. Thanks for joining me today. Hi. So great to be here. Thank you. How did you conceive of Lucy Campion back when you first started book one in the series? Well, you know, I started writing these books, I mean, honestly, something like 20 years ago, because the first book took me about 10 years to write. Um, and, you know, I was I was a historian working on my PhD, and I was studying um, 17th century patterns of domestic homicide <laughs> and, uh, among uh, everyday people and looked at kind of how men and women murdered differently. And I was going into the archives and I began to study uh, sort of the, what they called the true news of the day. And this was very sensationalized, half truths, half lies, um, or, you know, very, they're sort of like, um, uh, you know, supermarket tabloids kind of thing for the 17th century um, ephemeral cheap press. And I was reading what they called murder ballads where people actually would sing about murder, sort of tell the news of the day through song. And I always saw the same theme over and over. And it was the story of a young woman who had been found strangled or stabbed. And in her pocket was a note. And the note would say something like, dear so-and-so, please meet me at the secluded glen at midnight. Don't tell anyone. Um, 
and it would say like your sweetheart Thomas or Andrew or whoever and the people because there's no police force at the time the police force or the, the people would just say oh we know who Thomas is or Andrew is and they would wrangle this guy up throw him in um, a prison and um, you know soon after he would come to trial and, and usually he'd be found guilty and hanged and you see this the same story over and over and I started wondering, well, you know, who was this woman? Who was this man? Was he framed? And that became my first book, um, A Murder at Rosemond's Gate, which is the the story of Lucy Campy and her origin story. So I'm now on my sixth book, but Lucy was a chambermaid in the household of the local magistrate in the first book. But over time, um, because of circumstances, she actually ends up becoming a a printer's apprentice, a bookseller, um, which is where she is by this current book, uh, the, The Cry of the Hangman. Mm. So you're basically a scholar of murder, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, you're a scholar sure. <laughs> of British history. Yeah. Can, can you say something about how you research 17th century manners, customs, and living standards in that part of the world? Is everything available online now? Yeah, I mean, definitely. There's, a, there's another transition. I mean, the internet was kind of just in its, I mean, it was around when I was doing my research. But I had the, early on, I did have to go um, to archives. And, um, you know, I was going through a lot of microfilm and, you know, those kinds of things. And I was going to actual archives in London. Um, and I was when I was there for a while, um, as a graduate student, but, you know, over time, the books that I use are called early English books. That's that ephemeral press that I mentioned earlier, penny press, they call it, um, is available online. So actually the English sources are among the best in the world, um, to, that you can just get, but it's still very sketchy. It depends on who, at the time may have been collecting different sources. And so you have these random collections of, you know, book lovers, people who would just sort of like, I want to have collections of cookbooks. And so you have all the stuff, you know, cookbook collections, right? Or in my case, murders, like someone was collecting all of these because otherwise they would have just disintegrated over time if someone hadn't kept them. Um, But yeah, I definitely, um, so as a a historian, I mean, I actually studied Quakers, um, (laughs) Quaker women, political activities of Quaker women. I didn't actually stay in the murder route um, as a professional mm. historian, but I did, I did have to, um, you know, the, the, those, the penny press is very helpful for understanding like popular attitudes and beliefs and jokes and those kinds of things. But yeah, I mean, I had to read, you know, a lot of books around, like for me, it was around gender and political trends, economic trends, like what was happening, political, you know, what was happening in the world in the 1660s. Mm. I also managed to read the charming first novel of your Speakeasy Murder series while I was preparing for this interview. And it's a completely different series set in here in Chicago in 1920s, right? Mm -hmm. Can you describe the differences in how you research and write books alternating between the two series? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of been an interesting thing. People are like, I can't believe you went from the 17th century England, um, you know, plague ridden, uh, you know, the fire. Um, you know, to 1920s, the roaring 20s, um, you know, which was right after the terrible absurdities and tragedies of World War One. Um, I, you know, I, I live outside Chicago. And for me, one of the interesting things about Chicago, coming to Chicago, I, I grew up in Philadelphia, so I'm not from here, is just how lived the Chicago history, especially Prohibition era still is. I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia, they definitely had Prohibition and all of that. Um, but you don't even see it all in Philadelphia. It's all Liberty Bell, you know, um, so, you know, uh, Declaration of Independence and all that. Um, you wouldn't even know that the prohibition had really happened in, in Philadelphia, but in Chicago, it's very lived. 
And I, I found it really interesting when I was doing book talks, even for my other, and I would just sort of float this idea. I'm interested in setting a book in the 20s. I, from all these people, no matter who they were, they were like, oh, yeah, my, my great-grandfather used to cut Al Capone's hair or, you know, <laughs> I, my grandmother was a bootlegger off of Lake Michigan or like everybody had some story about being a rum runner, a bootlegger, you know, s- you know, slinging beer, you know, outside of a soap selling place or something, you know, it's crazy. So to me, it was just so lived in a way that um, I will say that the London history feels very distant <laughs> to me in a different kind of way. So that would I would say is one really big difference in even how I thought about the two series. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back to the 17th century. Was there ever a record of an actual person of that period who began as a maid, learned to read by listening to the lessons of the master's daughters, and then parlayed her skills into becoming a printer's apprentice? Or as she said, as she says, she's akin to a, an apprentice. Yeah, sort of like- yeah, because yeah, she couldn't actually be an apprentice, a printer's apprentice just because the guild really wasn't letting in women at the time. I mean, you know, so I am, you know, women gender historian. I, and I, so I did read, I mean, I can't, my character Lucy Campion is not based on an, any real historical figure. Um, however, I've, there are people, there are cases and examples all around the world of people who learned how to read um, and learned how, in, even in, in situations where they may not have been able to read, I would like to believe, you know, you and I believe would be those people that would, you know, try to find a way to read. And probably a lot of our listeners would too. Um, so I didn't think it was too much of a stretch that she could be someone who aspired to that as well, even though it was not so common for people to be able to read and write beyond sort of basic understanding the Bible on a really basic way. Um, but yeah, so she's not based on an actual character, but she's very much, um, I did not put her, I made her very specifically a woman who was a, a servant so that she could have more mobility. The women of the, as they called them, the middling sort. So Middle-class women, they didn't call them class at the time, but middle, middling sort, nobility, gentry, those women had a lot more restrictions. They couldn't just go around. But, you know, when you're a servant and people don't care about you, you actually can go to the marketplace and you kind of can move around in ways that, um, you know, more upper-class women couldn't do. So I deliberately situated her in a place that she could have some agency and also, honestly, as a mystery writer, you can't really have a sleuth who's like, oh, my gosh, there's a dead body. There's nothing I can do about it. So, I mean, <laughs> you, you have to have some agency. But I didn't feel like it was agency that was unearned. I feel like there were women who did show this ability and willingness to go outside of the expectations um, for their, of their gender at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this uh, the, the action takes place in 1667, just one year after the Great Fire. And um, I'm wondering if you could say something about how, uh, what has changed? I was very interested about the story of how people have an extra set of keys inside. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, just generally, the 1660s, I I deliberately set my books in that time period because I think it's a really fascinating decade um, in history. I mean, you know, this is a time where, well, 1660s, the King Charles II has been restored to the throne. So there had been this sort of Puritan rule. Um, and, you know, back when he, he comes back into power, theaters are opened and reopened, I should say, and um, people are able to sing in churches again. And there's a, like a lessening of people are able to like be a little more free than they had under the Puritan era. But then coupled with that, in 1665, uh, the, the plague strikes London. And so 
you know, there's so many people, families are decimated, communities are decimated, people are, you know, I mean, it's actually sort of sadly, like, you know, this is like what we're experiencing now, but, you know, a lot worse, you know, people would be sort of locked inside their houses if it was suspected they had the plague and, you know, nailed inside and they couldn't get back out. Um, you know, it was, it was a pretty terrible time and quite a few people died um, from the plague. And then, of course, in 1666, there was the Great Fire of London where maybe 20,000 businesses and homes were destroyed. So you have to imagine those two years are, um, you know, pretty decimating to the people. I mean, they're sort of stoic. They kind of continue on. But all of the disruptions, how people understood each other, the community has been completely broken apart. So you have to understand that at this time, you know, how the community, the community understood their relations of who they were to one another, their identity came from, like you would say, like, oh, you know, that's Charles, that's um, Daniel's son. He was the, you know, the person who worked in that household. Or And so people conferred their identity among each other by knowing their community bonds. Even in a city like London, you kind of knew, you know, your neighbors. And, and they were always looking, they were always spying on each other. They were always eavesdropping. They were always looking out the windows. So it wasn't actually like a thing back then. That was part of how the community understood itself. But the thing is, is after the fire and after the plague, those community bonds are disrupted. So for the first time, you see unparalleled uh, um, change in, in how people are understanding their station in life. So all of a sudden, these people who may have been the tradesmen are taking over their master's shops, or um, you know the servants are taking on the identities of their masters and saying, yes, these are my tools of the trade. Are these... Because no one is there to say, no, that wasn't you. You were just a servant because those people have died or fled. And so you see a lot of like pretty much um, rampant identity theft for one thing, which is kind of a fascinating premise. And then also unprecedented social mobility that I think you can see akin to in, after World War One and after World War Two or during World War One and World War Two, like say in the United States or Europe, where you know women were able to take the jobs of men because the men were fighting. This is the exact same thing that's happening. That uh, so this that's why Lucy is able to have this opportunity to be able to work in a printer's shop. Um, so it's just you know it's just this opportunity. So to me that was kind of an amazing place and time to situate Lucy. Mm. As the book opens, Lucy's at church and she notices that people are cleaner because they were likely to have bathed the night before. Can yeah. you say more about that? Yeah, it was pretty common. I mean, you know, standards of cleanliness were just really very different from our understanding in this, you know, back in the 17th century. And honestly, even our modern stand, I mean, cleanliness as a thing becomes more prominent over the centuries. And um, even cleanliness of, you know, 2021 is, is not even the cleanliness of 1940s. I mean, we, we have become a nation of soaps and, <laughs> and that's like the world too. But yeah, so yeah, back then they might... Um, they might only like bathe once a week or, you know, and they would all share the tub or, you know, you might get cleaned up for, for church. Um, and yeah, that was pretty typical. And if you were lucky, you had some nice soaps to, to throw into the water when it was final year time. <laughs> Finally your time, right? The judge, his older son, Adam, had left for the colonies to establish some new legal codes. Whoa. I assume you're talking about the colonies that later became the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like generally speaking, when they're referring to the new world or the colonies, that's what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about those new legal codes. What is he bringing over there? 
Yeah, I mean, so I have that um, Adam is, you know, so he is in himself, he's a, 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 a lawyer also, like his father was a judge. Um, and yeah, and so the thing is, is these um, new, these colonies, these 13 colonies, are they are often viewed as very, um, you know, lawless. <laughs> and so there was this point during the 17th century where, um, you know, people were coming over to help develop the legal codes of the day. And these were just the colony ones. They're certainly not the ones that we see with um, the Constitution, you know, 100 years later. But those come from, you know, the legal thinking from the previous um, century. Um, so, yeah, I just thought it, I needed him to go for a while um, just for different reasons as a device. And I thought I could see him wanting to sort of um, understand something about what's happening in this, you know, so-called new world. Part of Lucy's work as an apprentice printer is to entice the crowd of people to buy some of her materials. What kind of records exist that would show you how a printer of that period operated? And I'm, I'm also interested to know, was it really a custom for booksellers to exchange their wares? Yeah, so there was a lot. I mean, so a couple things. I mean, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of researching, um, you know, how these early printing trades worked and how the uh, printers worked among themselves and they were tradesmen um, in a, of a sort, but they would, uh, you know, there's actually some amazing, there's not a lot of YouTube videos for my time period, but you can see some where printers um, are using printing presses from the 17th. I mean, these are obviously reconstructions, but how people could actually, you know, put in all the type. And of course it's all backwards and, um, and you know, how they actually ran these pieces off. But yeah, that's the thing. Um, the booksellers who were also often the authors or the writers, it was sort of a, you know, a combined business there. They would go out and they would literally sing. I mean, if you, you look at some of the, I mean, some of them were not set to songs. So you might, they might read them out loud because again, a lot of the, um, the people who might purchase them are not literate. So there's pictures, woodcuts, um, images that sort of convey something of what the, the story is or the ballad is. And this was also considered a form of art. People would take these pieces and they would paste them up on their walls at home because they didn't have like paintings. I mean, so this was the art that they would have, you know, at their kitchen table. Um, you know, someone who's maybe getting, you know, eaten by a devil or, you know, whatever the woodcut depicts. Um, and, you know, often murders have things with devils. And um, But yeah, they, they would, they would, if it was a ballad, they would actually sing it. And, you know, one of... Um, my favorites, it's just, it was just a joke for the audience. They would have gotten the joke. The ballads would say, like, they would sing about some murder, you know, like the one I described earlier. And it would say something like, to set to the tune of, where is my love? And the audience probably would have gotten the joke, because the joke is, you have killed your love, and she's laying at your feet dead. <laughs> you know, it's sort of a funny, but the popular song was probably like a romantic ballad of, you know, wooing some sweetheart who has left for a while or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, they would sing. And the tradesmen did trade amongst themselves, um, you know, that they might say, oh, I see you have 10 of those. Um, I'll, I'll, I will take, I would love to get 10 of those and I'll give you 10 of mine or, you know, because it helps their own business to have, you know, other wares to sell. So that was actually a fairly common practice to trade them um, and not just, you know, because you might pay in kind. And that was just paying in kind was a really common exchange among merchants of any sort. Will you explain your title, Cry of the Hangman? Yeah, so all of my titles in this series are murder ballads. Um, and 
Most of them are ones that Lucy writes or as the anonymous author, but sometimes they are related to a murder that she is engaged with. Um, but they are all the titles of mur- murder ballads. Um, I've made them up, though. They're not. <laughs> um, although this this one, The Cry of the Hangman, um, was based on another uh, ballad of a similar name. And the cadence was of a similar name to a real one because I did want to get some of that authentically. And for me, um, it's, you know, all of my books have sort of a a historical question or something I've sort of just pondered from time to time. And for me, there was this question of, you know, who, who, who is a hangman? What is the identity of a hangman? Like, how do you become, like, why do you become this, I mean, this person, like how, why do you become an executioner and take the lives of other people? Like, who is it that does that? Why do they do that? So the cry of the hangman, the ballad um, kind of tells the story of of how the hangman, like what what they how they view their role in the execution system. Um, you know that they there is a jury, and you know a crime has been committed, so the world is turned upside down. But the the trial puts it all back to right: the arrest, and the trial, and then the conviction. And the executioner has very much a role in the legal system, and that's how they understood themselves. And I. I just thought that was a really interesting thing to kind of explore. And so that uh, that title is of the specific ballad, but then it's sort of a framing question around um, something related to, to a hangman more broadly. Lucy questions why people love such scary, horrible tales. Do you agree with Lucy's boss, Master <laughs> Aubrey, that stories like Cry of the Hangman help people make sense of tragedy and disorder? Yeah, I mean, that was, I have that from pretty much through my books. Um, there's this notion that murder sells. And that was something that M- Master Aubrey will always say, is m- murder sells. And, um, and I mean, honestly, you see that even in like news and tabloids today, you know, you have a murder and people will click on it now and they want to read about it. And sometimes the gorier, the better. Um, and, you know, it's quite tragic. And I think for Lucy, it's actually, I have her kind of reckon- reckoning with this I think in the way that maybe some of us who are mystery writers who, who do write about murder, that maybe we've kind of had to question this ourselves, you know, to say like, we are writing these novels, these mysteries, there are these murders in them, but, you know, to what end? Are we just entertaining people with murder? Or, you know, are we trying to say, for me, it was always, and I feel like Lucy too, <laughs> but for me, it was always around the idea of the impact that a murder has on a community. Um, and that was what I was always really interested in exploring. So my books don't have, the violence pretty much takes place off scene. Um, it doesn't really, I mean, sometimes I'll describe something that happens, but my books aren't like the murder's not, you know, blood across the pages or anything like that. And so I have Lucy questioning it because it's probably things I've been questioning. Like why, why are we writing crime fiction in a time when murder is, you know, I mean, when we know that murder is a, is a pretty terrible thing, but for me, it's not about making it seem like it's, you know, like exciting or interesting. It's more like, how can we write this wrong? Um, and you know, how do we, how do we bring this killer to justice, whatever form of justice that might be? Yeah. You write that you were interested in examining order and disorder in various Mm -hmm. aspects of the 17th century. So what can you share a little bit about your discovery? Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, that's even just as a historian, that was like order and disorder are just such common themes in the 17th century. They have just gone through um, pretty significant sets of civil wars in the earlier part of the century. Um, 
And, you know, it does seem like the order, there's a lot of disorder around them, but it's also disorder like when, as I described before in the 1660s, like when women are taking on men's roles, that's roles, that's viewed as disorderly or, um, you know, when, when things just don't seem right. And, and then, of course, the whole concept of a murder occurring in a community that is disorder. And so England has, especially at this time, has a very strong sense of we need to right this wrong. Um, and it is a really, and so all of the tracks that you see, these pamphlets about um, murder, they will show a very disorderly track that may show, like, again, it's all in woodcuts of like someone being axed or, you know, something like mm-hmm. that. And then you have the the, the follow-up, the order, order restored is almost always what there's a call and it'll show like the picture of the man being, or, you know, often a man, but the criminal being hanged. And it's like this very clear understanding to everybody about what it means to bring order back to a disorderly world. Mm. And also, this is, I was just going to say the order, the other thing is just because I'm a Quaker, I write about Quakers. It was also all of these uh, religious groups that were dissenting from the Church of England were very much also sort of pushing a new disorder onto what had been the appropriate way to, you know, to have your faith. Huh. So interesting. I am just, I loved reading the book and this is so interesting talking to you, Susanna. What are you working on next? Will there be another Lucy Campion book soon? Yeah. You know, funny enough, I will, um, I will start writing. I am contracted for Lucy book seven untitled. Um, I'm going to start working on that on January 15th um, because I'm working on a standalone set actually in 1935 Chicago. So I'm going back to the Chicago and, um, and sort of more of a thriller. So we'll see how it goes, but yeah, then I'll start working on Lucy book seven, which should come out in 2023. Ooh, I want to hear about it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Susanna. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Susanna Calkins about her sixth book in the Lucy Campion mystery series, Cry of the Hangman. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading.